0: Pauline, give me some of your tots. I even said, blood of a hen. more blood. I ate his liver with some father beans. Nice viandy. Humble, pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Cooking Show. I am your host, Bob, and last week. We did spatchcock chickens cooked on the grill. And I had mentioned that my favorite way to cook chickens, especially outside, is rotisserie. So rather than just leave that hang there, I figured it's summer. It's beautiful weather. I've got, you know, a bunch of chickens out there in the chicken coop that are mm, right around uh, the age of deliciousness. So let's do some rotisserie chicken. All right. Now for this, very similar to last week,' it's not it's not really a recipe heavy um, preparation. It's not an ingredient. It's not uh, you know, a, a laundry list of, of stuff that needs to go in in, in specific quantities. It's mainly technique and um, it, it's a vibe, you know, It's a vibe. You got a vibe check on the rotisserie. So you know, as with every episode, take a look at the show notes. There'll be an imager album with pictures. There will be a link to the particular rotisserie hardware that I'm using. The um, the rotating motor. I'm not sure if it's the exact spit that I'm using, as well as the, the little Pokey Boys, the jabby jigs <laughs> I don't know exactly what they're called, but all that stuff. I think it's like $119, $120, something like that for the whole set, and, uh, and that'll... Get you started there now let's see why aside from flavor why does rotisserie chicken have such a, a hold on me you know why do i why do i put it on a pedestal well as a young boy as a lad uh, my grandparents every year for my birthday sometimes for just random parties during the summer or whatever they would cook a whole gang load of chickens on the spit, two spits actually. They actually had um, like a like a barbecue pit, uh, a fire pit made out of fire brick and everything that was specifically there for ro- roasting chickens. And man, it is just delicious. Great memories of that. But really, the 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 cooking process, the methodology, it's really old. And let me tell you what, its it has endured because it is good, okay? Rotisserie as a cooking method, I mean, well over a thousand years. I mean, it goes back even prior to where you have records and images and mentions and whatever. Certainly cooking, cooking poultry, cooking joints of meat on a slowly rotating spit, slightly offset from a wood fire. I mean, that is a tale as old as time. When it comes to preparing food, right? But I mean, we have uh, specific references to it in the 14th century. You know, there's a well, is this a wood carving or an illustration from the Roman de Alexander uh, Bruges, 1338 to 44, in the Bodleian Library. That is a spitted fowl rotated by hand. And let's see, one, two, three, four. They have five fowl on a spit. In this particular illustration, and they baste them with a super long spoon so they don't have to burn all the uh, hair off of their knuckles um, by reaching over and uh, basting the fowl. Uh, certainly, rotisserie has gotten cheapened up in the modern era. You have rotisserie chickens at your grocery store at Sam's Club, at Costco, or whatever, what, six, seven, eight dollars, something like that. And you get a, a really fat bird really flavorful, tender, juicy, and delicious. It's a great value. It's a great um, economy of protein, certainly. Ron Popeil, Cal the Showtime rotisserie oven. Oh God, that was a long time ago now. I was just gonna say a few years ago, but uh, that would have been probably close to 20 years ago at this point. And, you know, that was a, a single bird roasting, basically a rotisserie toaster oven. But all this stuff aside, what I like to do is roast you know, one, one to five chickens over a wood fire outside over the course of anywhere from like four to six hours. Okay. Now, one of the things that I think is necessary when doing rotisserie is that there has to be there has to be a certain level of ghetto to the setup. Like, part of the setup has to be, like, jerry-rigged to a point where, you know, no two people are going to set it up exactly the same way, whether it's because you're missing pieces of equipment like myself. Like, I I could not find the bracket that the rotisserie motor fits into. And even if I did, um, I'd don't have, uh, I don't think it came with a stake to mount it, because I think this is actually supposed to be attached to a grill, you know, like a civilized person. I don't do any of that, you know? So, uh, you know, how you get it mounted, how you get it set up, what the fire pit is consisting of. You know, sometimes it's uh, dug into the ground. Sometimes it's directly on the ground. Sometimes it's in a, you know, a bespoke brick barbecue sometimes it's uh some other type of contraption i actually broke down a weber kettle grill took the the legs off so that i just had the bowl and then put that on a bed of <laughs> broken bricks because i used to have a brick barbecue pit type of thing that i would put the spit across and build the fire down in that um but i took that apart to kind of put the greenhouse where it is. So I had all these uh, brick, pieces of brick debris. So I used that, put it on the ground, put the the Weber kettle on top of that so that I wouldn't burn out the grass in that particular area. And then because I didn't have the bracket for the rotisserie motor, I used a T-post. Which is, you know, when you live on a farm, you've got T posts for days. I got T posts everywhere. The T post doesn't actually fit exactly in the bracket. So, with a hacksaw, we had to trim that up a little bit. And then we put and got it in there, cut pieces of the T post off. He used some, uh, actually, it was electric fence wire <laughs> to bind the motor to the post to get another T post uh for the opposite side and again i didn't have the hook anymore that you hang the spit rod on so i used an s hook from a bungee strap put through the hole in the t-post and that held everything together so anyway the point is there has to be some element of making do to have a good rotisserie whether it's the fire the setup of the the motor whatever all of the above In some cases, you don't even have a rotisserie motor. A lot of people will use just any type of um, reciprocating or circulating revolving electric motor, and then they can gear it up or gear it down or use um, uh, belts to get the desired speed. Sometimes you use a wooden pole, (laughs) a giant wooden dowel as your spit rod. You know, I mean, it's whatever whatever floats your boat. It is limited only to your hmm, infinite resource and sagacity to come up with a way to turn the meat for hours and hours and hours over a fire. In medieval times, the rotisserie would be turned by a turn spit boy. Uh, this would be a, a young man whose job was to sit off to the side and turn the spit. Now you think about how rotisserie works you have you have your meat a lot of times poultry sometimes other joints of meat or whole suckling pigs or whatever and they're turning and they're slightly offset from the fire okay now this is uh, it's practical uh at some level because you know if you were doing this at a castle or in a, in a manor you know 600 years ago Chances are you'd have a big hearth, but you wouldn't really have a way to put the meat directly over the fire. So you would have this set up just in front of the flame and the heat, and it would be turning there and it would catch that heat offset. What that does is it allows for really slow cooking so that because you're turning the meat very slowly, usually between one and three revolutions per minute, uh, the Showtime rotisserie oven, I believe, turns at six revolutions per minute. Uh, My particular rotisserie motor turns at three revolutions per minute. So once every 20 seconds, it'll turn around. If you dial it in the right distance from the fire, the fire at the right intensity and all that kind of stuff. What you're doing is you're very slowly building up heat in the corpus of the meat as it turns. Because when side A is facing the flame and the heat. It's warming up, warming up, warming up for, you know, roughly 15 seconds before it rotates out of the hot zone. But then within 40 seconds, it's coming back into the hot zone. So it isn't going to lose all the heat that it acquired on its first pass. And then over time, that heat builds up to the point that the connective tissue, the tendons, the ligament, the collagen inside of the joints and the skin and all that stuff really start breaking down due to the accumulation of the heat, due to the fact that the juices are constantly falling down and then being turned over. It's like a water wheel where, yes, you will get some of the juices dripping off eventually, but for a long time, they're just going to self-baste and roll over and over and over this chicken or duck or goose or turkey or pork or beef or whatever. And that is uh, fantastic. It's going to break down those connective tissues and make it super tender uh, and super flavorful. It's going to be catching smoke through this whole process wisps of smoke. It's not like going to be in a smokehouse. It's not going to be inundated with smoke. It's going to be very thin smoke. It's like if you put your face right down next to the meat, it would be warm, it would be hot. You wouldn't be able to keep it there for a long time, but you could keep it there for a while. And you would be able to take a couple labored breaths. You wouldn't be just completely overwhelmed with smoke. So that thin, wispy smoke blowing this way and that hither and yon across your roasting meat is going to impart an absolutely divine flavor that you're going to love. A great book I have to recommend is The Belly of Paris, which is actually I believe it's a a translation um, written in French by Emile uh, Zola, it was uh, La Ventre de Paris. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but it's The Belly of France. And it's this, you know, working class saga, of the second half of the 19th century. And it takes place in and around Leal, which is the central marketplace in Paris um, that was, you know, eventually enclosed in like steel and glass. So it's like this giant atrium indoor market, but has an outdoor feel to it. And coincidentally, the restaurant that Anthony Bourdain worked at in New York when he wrote Kitchen Confidential and kind of like became a famous person was named Laal, and it was named after this marketplace in france but anyway there's a, a great i mean uh, in this book wonderful depictions of food because you know the guy goes to live with his um his half brother who's a charcutier, and uh, so you know you you have descriptions of of sausages and, and cured meats and hamons oh. and all this kind of stuff. And then walking through Leal and through the market, you have descriptions of produce and all the fish and all the cheese and all this stuff that's for sale. And at one point I believe there is a, uh, a person vending poultry and is being cooked on the rotisserie. And it's like a multi-layered level, multi-leveled rotisserie where close down to the ground are um chickens and pheasant and quail and squab you know dove or whatever and then above that you have ducks and then above that you have geese and the goose fat drips down onto the ducks and the duck fat and the goose fat drip down onto the smaller birds like the less fatted non-waterfowl non-migratory birds on the bottom and it just sounds like such a conundrum like when you have that much wood-fired poultry of such amazing quality have you know duck and goose and chicken and pheasant and all this other stuff how how do you sample all of those without without filling up on the first thing <laughs> like how are you able to uh, experience all of that um, without just engorging yourself and being miserable the rest of the day. But anyway, yeah, The Belly of Paris, you should definitely check that out. Oh, also, since I mentioned uh, you know, Anthony Bourdain and Léal, um, uh, Bourdain had a show. I think it was called The Layover. This would have been before No Reservations and before Parts Unknown. And the layover was like, the the premise of the show, it was kind of dumb, okay, it was a little dumb. But it was like you're flying between two cities and you have a layover in a third city. And you're there for 18 hours or you're there for 12 hours or you're there for 36 hours. What can you do in the time that you're laid over in you know some European city or whatever? And one of these... I think he was laid over in uh, Glasgow or, or somewhere in Scotland, and, and he met up with Fergus Henderson, and Fergus Henderson is famous for writing uh, a cookbook. I believe it was called either Nose to Tail or Snout to Tail, and Fergus Henderson is a restaurateur who focuses on nose to tail or snout to tail cooking? Lots of organ meats, including Corv- you know kidney pie, steak and kidney pie, and uh, liver terrines and pâtés and spleen and in uh, the lights. The lights are the lungs of, of mammals, you know, because they're very light and airy, so they're called the lights, and they're prepared in various ways or whatever. But Fergus Henderson uh, takes Bourdain to this little bookstore in. I think I think it's Glasgow. I might, I might be completely screwing that. I mean, Fergus Henderson might be not even from Scotland. I don't, I'm not sure. But anyway, they go to this little bookstore, and uh, one he Bourdain picks out I don't know, like a half dozen books or whatever, and one of them is The Belly of Paris. And I saw that in that show, and was like, hey, I'm gonna order that book on amazon and read it and i did it was fantastic and uh, you should definitely check it out um the the descriptions of food are just off the chart and anyway that's a little bit of a, a little bit of a tangent to there but anyway um well right let's talk about uh cooking chickens on the rotisserie um like i said my my meat birds my first batch of meat birds I call them meat birds. Some people say they're broilers or roasters or whatever, but really that depends on the age at which you slaughter them. And while they're still alive, that is an unknown. You know what I mean? Like they aren't broilers until they're slaughtered at broiler size. They're not roasters until they're slaughtered at roaster size. So right now they're just birds that are destined for um, being eaten as poultry. So that's why I call them meat birds. But my first batch of meat birds are getting to the point where they're roughly uh, broiler size or fryer sized, I believe. And, uh, so I was going to process two of them, but after I grabbed the first one up, I was like, yeah, a little light. I may, I may have got the two biggest ones last week whenever I did the spatchcock. So I I was like, all right, I'm going to do three of them. And three works out nicely because you can cinch them together. One, two, three on that spit roast. And uh, really lock it down, get it nice and tight. You have this, like, basically a suckling pig-sized log of poultry (laughs) that'll be (laughs) rotating above the fire there. But anyway, so the first thing we have to do is we have to procure the chicken. And, you know, if you're buying it at the grocery store, you're going to have different proportions than the the chickens that I'm processing here. Because my chickens are cross-breeds of heritage breeds that are dual-purpose for the most part. Good at laying eggs, good at producing meat, but then when they breed with each other, when the Black Jersey giant mates with an Americana or when a Buff Warpington mates with another uh, barred rock, whatever. Yeah, I'm trying to think of all the breeds of chickens I have out there, different aspects of the genetic lineage will show through and you'll generally end up with, with an older style carcass, you know. One where you, you do have distinct delineations between the breasts and the thighs and the legs and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you have all the parts of the chicken, but it's not going to be round. It's not going to be rotund. It's going to be a less heavy carcass. Uh, the, the meat is going to be leaner, but with more um, visceral fat. And more robust skin, like the skin will need to break down over the slow cooking process for a long time. Um, but it's a it's a very nicely proportioned bird, and the flavor is out of this world, I tell you. It's really good. Anyway, process three birds, get them ready. Um, I did brine these for a couple of hours beforehand, basically while I got the grill set up and, and split some of my cordwood down into smaller pieces. Uh, the brine was one cup of kosher salt, one cup of granulated sugar, and one gallon of water. Mix that up. Oh, I also threw some fresh thyme sprigs in there. Now listen, was the thyme necessary? Not at all. Probably couldn't taste it at all at the end of the cooking process, because after all, these birds are being cooked over a wood fire. They're being smoked. They're being basted with a very flavorful baste. And then at the end, they're being um, uh, broken down and cut up on um, a board sauce, which we talked about last week, which are fresh herbs um, placed under the hot poultry when it comes off of the spit so that they'll wilt and take on some of the juices from the, from the chicken. And then uh, sort of hydrate that with some olive oil and the juice of a lemon and chop it up nice and fine and then spread that over the finished meat So having a few sprigs of fresh thyme in the brine, you know, the morning of, is uh, pretty much only there for the gram. It's just there to make the picture look more interesting. (laughs) But anyway, I threw them in the brine and put them in the fridge and then uh, worked on getting the fire going. Now, wood selection. Is it super important to be really picky about the species of wood that you use? Do you want to use uh, exclusively hickory or applewood or mesquite? Nah, I say no. I mean, in the case of like mesquite, all right, because that's going to impart a very distinct flavor. But otherwise, otherwise, I don't find that it's super important. That said, that said, I do like the smell of hickory smoke so while i'm not picky about like what i start the fire with and what the first half of the cooking is is done on i did make sure that the the latter half when i was adding wood to the fire it was exclusively hickory now it could you if he gave me two chickens one cooked over oak or give me three chickens one cooked over oak one cooked over maple and one cooked over hickory, would I be able to tell you which one's which? I don't think so. I might be able to tell you that they're different. Be like, hey, you know, it's something slightly different from this one to this one, and this one to that one. But I certainly couldn't tell you which one was cooked over what type of, of wood. That said, if you have your choice, if you have wood available, I mean, I have. at this point, I have about eight cords of, of wood out there. Everything from poplar to oak to maple to hickory to beech. So, uh, you know, I had my choice. And I was like, well, you know what? If I have hickory here, why not use it? You know what I mean? So I did. Uh, So that's that. Now, let's talk about the baste. The baste. Following in last week's footsteps, I started off with pickle juice. And I had some homemade butter. And this is cultured butter, so it has a little... I don't want to say funk, but it does have like a... parmigiani sort of a uh, uh, top note to it so a nice knob of that homemade cultured butter in the pickle juice and then we got uh, okay i guess i should talk about the dry rub first equal parts salt black pepper paprika easy breezy super simple beautiful cover girl Uh, Probably a quarter cup of each of those would be more than enough. I used a half cup of each. I used a half cup of each, so I had a significant amount left over. Some of that I added to the brine, or not the brine, to the base. So I had pickle juice, a knob of butter, heated that up on the stove inside, and then once you take it outside, it's like 80 degrees out there, it's sitting in the sun, that butter's going to stay melted and and incorporated with the pickle juice or whatever. Uh, I put, you know, uh, a couple of tablespoons of my dry rub into the base, gave it a nice red color, a little extra saltiness, a little bit of pepper, whatever. And then with a barbecue brush, I didn't, I did not brush this on during the cooking process, but I did drizzle it on. And I also didn't uh, start doing that until well into the second hour. The reason for that, reason for that is we want some smoke adherence to the skin. We want some penetration and, you know, during the early part of the cooking, when the fat isn't rendering out of the, the poultry as readily, it's sort of, it starts off sort of dry. That's a good opportunity for smoke particles to adhere to the skin of the chicken. When you're smoking things like ham, uh, bacon, other things, a lot of times, once you'll take it out of the brine and you'll let it sit in the refrigerator uncovered overnight, this will give the surface a sort of a tacky, sticky, uh, kind of rubbery sort of texture. It's called a pellicle, and that is supposed to capture the smoke particles as it flows over the the surface. By putting that dry rub of salt, pepper, and paprika on the surface of the chicken, it does two things. One, the salt is going to desiccate the skin a little bit, so it is going to have sort of a dry, crusty um, appearance early on in the cooking process. Also, it's basically just going to dry it out, and it's going to make it sticky, and the, the particles of the rub, the, the individual ground pepper particles, the, the salt crystals, the paprika, they are three-dimensional. And if you look at them, if you look at the surface of the chickens where they're all rubbed up and on the spit under a microscope, it's going to look like ridges and valleys and, and craters and boulders and all this kind of stuff. All of that is opportunity for smoke particles to adhere and get bound up on the skin of the of the poultry so during the first hour and a half two hours two hours and 15 minutes maybe um, i try to avoid wetting that down i'm letting the smoke like the smoke dry adhere to the surface of the chicken and then after that like i said just drizzle it on you make a couple passes as the uh yeah, as the chickens are turning on the spit there and you can use as much or as little i find that it hydrates and cools down the skin while it's cooking so if you if you notice it's starting to bubble a little bit and you're like ah, it's a little it's a little early in the cooking process for it to be spitting and bubbling but all you have to do is wait for the the wood to burn down um, and uh, the heat to sort of back off a little bit. So by giving it a drizzle of the base, you can slow down that cooking process pretty effectively. But then, oh yeah, also, whenever you put the chickens on the spit and you wedge them down in there and you get them nice and tight and bound up between the little Pokemon bobs, I can't remember, I don't know what they're called, it's, I, I can't remember, I don't think I've ever known. If there is a name for the four or two sprong, four or two pronged spike, thing that you you wedge down against the chicken and skewer it and hold it together nice and tight. If there's a word for that, I don't think I've ever heard that word. So I can't say that I've forgotten it. I've just never known it. Anyway, once you get those on there, you get it all nice and tight, you definitely want to truss your birds up or tie them up however you can. I like to sort of interlock them so that the the legs of the next bird in the sequence kind of get held down by the wings of the first bird in the sequence and i don't know if you look at the pictures in the imager album you might be able to see this uh the pictures of the chickens on the spit themselves like the the wings are kind of like clamping down the legs of the of the next bird anyway uh so you make make a couple ties get it nice and tight. The reason for tying this up, tying up roasts in general, is that you're, well, one, you don't want things flopping around. As as this is turning, you want it to be very um, uniform and consistent so that you're not working the spit rod out of the motor, so that you're not putting any undue stresses on the mechanism itself uh, by having, you know, every time the, the bird's turn you don't want them like going and like rolling over the apex of that turn um, because that can mess up your spit motor it can um, like i said it can dislodge the spit rod from the motor and then it's going to fall and your bird's going to end up in the fire or whatever so you want it nice and tight and consistent also you're normalizing the density of the protein Um, this is why we tie roasts up so that Uh, the little floppy thin bits that are hanging off like the wings and the legs uh, those would cook very quickly and they would overcook and they would burn so by tying them up cinching them up tight they are going to wick heat out of their little thin bits and into the thicker bits and that is going to uh result in more even consistent cooking and it's really good plus It's part of the ceremony of finishing the dish, of like taking it off the spit, setting it on on the table, in this case setting it on the cutting board that has the board sauce on it, and then coming in with either a knife or a pair of scissors and snipping all of the, the pieces of twine that are binding up the birds and then pulling them off and unthreading them from the wig tips and everything else. It's just uh, you know, it's all pomp and circumstance and you gotta do it. All right. So once we take this off and we, you know, you you stab it with your thermometer and you can stab it down in down in thigh joint, in the middle of the breast. You can basically just try to get it at different places to make sure that you've you've cooked it all the way through and um you know, poultry is quote unquote done at 165 degrees, but if you're doing this real slow of period of time and you really want it to get super tender and, and broken down and delicious... Um, I shoot for mm, between 195 and 200 degrees, at least at three different points, you know, like if I stab it down through the back, it's probably going to be over 200 because it's thin and there's lots of bone there. Um, Whereas down in the thigh, it might be like 198 and then in the breast, it might be 195 or 196 or something like that. But anyway that's a good temperature to shoot for and then it gives you a lot of carryover so when you pull it off you can set it on the board with your board sauce now for our board sauce i think i used uh, garlic chive oregano dill a little bit of fennel and i did do thyme leaves and i did Pluck the thyme leaves off the stems so that I would have woody thyme stems in my board sauce. And it was super delicious. And then, like I said, um, I added a little olive oil and the juice of a lemon and chopped it up nice and fine. But you'll remove the spit from the rotisserie motor and bring it over and set it over the, uh, the cutting board and the board sauce. Um, you can remove the spike jig that can slide off the end of the, the the spit there snip the twine strands and then very carefully and very gingerly ext- it's like pulling a sword from a sheath <laughs> but re- remove the the spit rod from the chickens and then let them rest a little bit and then transfer them to a serving platter or break them down into their constituent pieces and in doing so release releasing a lot of juice onto the fresh herbs which you can then chop up very super duper fine and uh, and garnish your chicken with that just remembered that with regard to rotisserie in the middle ages there was actually a breed of dog called turnspit dogs and in wood carvings and prints they look very similar to dachshunds but from what i understand that the actual breed of turnspit dog is uh, lost to time like they are it is an extinct breed of dog um, but they were little dogs that would run on a wheel not not unlike a wheel or like a um, a treadmill type of thing and that would uh, turn the mechanism to rotate the uh the meats on the rotisserie and uh you know sometimes you had a little dog that did it sometimes you had a boy that did it uh, and now we have um now we have electric motors and intermi- intermediate uh, between that, kind of like a technological stepping stone, were, what would you call them, like turbines that were installed in the chimneys, that the hot air moving up the chimney would turn the turbines, and then you could gear that down through a sequence of pulleys and gears and whatever to um, to turn the spit. And that seems... It seems ingenious and also like something that probably would not work more often than it did work. You know what I mean? But anyway, uh, so yeah, uh, we got we've got the dry rub. talked about that, salt pepper paprika. We talked about the based pickle juice and butter and a little bit of the dry rub mixed into it. Um, wood selection. I'm a fan of hickory and oak. Um, but it's really not that big of a deal. I don't think. And then of course the poultry selection, you can use uh, chicken, you can use capon, you can use Turkey or duck or any of these things. I would, mm, unless you were using multiple motors and, uh, spits. I would avoid mixing species just because you're gonna have different cooking times and different uh, heat penetration, different, you you would end up with different textures. Like it would be better to do two capons on a spit than it would be to do a capon and a duck. Because if you're doing both of those, I'm gonna say one of them or both are not gonna be cooked optimally trying to, control for the, the the vast difference in size and shape and density and all that kind of stuff so but if you had if you had two spits going you know put a capon on one put a duck on the other put the duck over the capon so that the duck fat would drip down onto the capon it's uh yeah i'm not going to say that it's infinite possibilities because the possibilities certainly are finite but they are extensive <laughs> anyway uh check out the pictures uh if you want to order yourself a rotisserie do so from amazon or whatever i'm sure you can probably go to like your sporting goods stores like cabela's or um, maybe even dick's sporting goods who knows maybe tractor supplier world king i don't know i've never bought one of these things at a store before i just know that you can get them on amazon Uh, So check that out, and thanks for listening. Next week, we'll get back in and do, like, something that is a specific recipe with ingredients and all that kind of stuff. But I was kind of having a nostalgic kind of two weeks cooking poultry over wood fires. So thanks for bearing with me. Talk to you guys next week.